Good morning, church family. Chris, this was the exact opposite of what I wanted. (laughs) Not about us, it's about the Lord. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired word. And if you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And I'll be reading to you verses 60 through 71. John chapter 6. Verses 60 through 71. I'll be reading to you from uh, maybe a slightly different version from what you have, but I'm going to reference the NASB through my sermon. So I'll be reading to you from the ESV and using the NASB for the preaching. And there's a reason for it. Let me read to you God's holy word. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is what I told you, that no one of you can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with busyness in our hearts, in our minds. There's many burdens that we have carried into this building this morning, but we want to hear from you. We want your word to be what dwells in our hearts and our minds. So take away the distractions. Lift high your son, Jesus Christ. What you wish to teach us from your word, instruct us. And what you wish for us to apply from your word today, please help us. In your heavenly, holy, and precious name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm old school, so I have paper, so it'll be a little bit tough to jockey between the pulpit, but I'll do my best. Believing is seeing. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Many centuries before John chapter 6, the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. Today, we pick up the story in John chapter 6, and they're in bondage Again, 
but this time to the Romans. The Lord, you remember, rescued them from the Egyptians and took them through the water into the wilderness. God sustained his people by providing manna and bread for many years. The Israelites in the book of John are also now, once again, in submission. But this time, as we know, to the Romans. They wanted a prophet. They wanted a deliverer. They wanted bread. They wanted their bellies full. And they wanted healing. But what they didn't want is what Jesus was going to give them in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is the last place in the Bible, if you were a preacher, that you would pick to come and preach a sermon from. Why? It starts off with 20,000 people trying to find Jesus, and it ends off with 11 that truly follow him. This is not for the faint of heart. This is reality. This is what God's word teaches us. Many people came to hear Jesus because they wanted what they wanted for themselves. Many would desert Jesus. Very few would be devoted to Jesus, and one would try to deceive Jesus, which would not work. So we're going to go into your Bibles, and I want you to turn to John 1, verse 14, as we start this journey. So typically, as a pastor, you would go through the book of the Bible, right? You start at John 1, and eventually you'd end up at John 6, verse 60. I don't have that luxury this morning. So I'm going to have to give you a two-minute flyby in the book of John to where we've come from to where we are, context and setting and background. So here we go. John 1, verse 14. Before we look at this, have you ever noticed in the synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all start with something very different than the book of John does. They start with the genealogy. Where did Jesus come from? Jewish heritage. Where did Jesus come from? Connecting the Gentiles. Here, in the book of John, we start with a very different perspective. John looks back not to his incarnation, but to him as incarnate God creating the very world itself. John 1.14, look with me. And the Word became flesh, capital W, Word, and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory, glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnate Son, the deity, God himself takes on human flesh. This is the Christmas story right here. And so we go to John 2, and here goes the flyby. And you remember the scene? His mom turns to him and says what? We need some more wine. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. In fact, he doesn't say time. He uses the word hour, and it's significant. And then we go to John chapter 4. And you remember, he heals the official's son. This is miracle number 2. Then we go to John 5, and he heals a lame man who has been lame for decades. But he does it on all days. When? The Sabbath. And now we enter into John 
chapter 6. The crowds wanted signs. They wanted healing. They wanted bread. The Jewish leaders had set their hopes in Moses and his writings. They did not believe in Moses. Let that sink in for a sec. They wanted signs, but they did not believe in Moses. For how we know it's true, look at John chapter 5, 46 to 47. God's word teaches us here, John chapter 5, 46 to 47, for, this is the ground, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is not how you make friends and influence people. Jesus didn't care. God's word teaches us that the Jewish leaders had put their hope in Moses versus putting their hope in the one Moses wrote about. And so here we go. John chapter 6 opens in a tranquil setting. Isn't this a beautiful scene? Picture this for a second. He's up on the mount and he's coming up to the mount. His disciples are in there and and the crowd is following Jesus now. It says in God's word, if you look at the beginning of John chapter 6, 5,000 men. It's estimated between the, the women and the children that it was around 20,000 people were following Jesus at this point, just up this mountain. And here we go. A large crowd, John 6 verse 2, followed him because they saw signs which he was performing to those who were sick. Why are they following Jesus? Because of what he would do for them. And then Jesus, in verse 3, went up to the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. That's significant. He sat because he is a teacher. The disciples gathered around him. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, look to verse 5. Seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? Do you know how Jesus makes bread? He just says bread. Okay? This was not a question Jesus was wrestling with. If Jesus wants bread, there's bread. He tests his disciples to see their faith. Where are we to buy bread? Look at the crowd coming. It's late. The Passover in verse 4 is coming. And that's going to be significant for this. The battle for bread was a lifelong battle in those days. We don't understand that. We want bread, we go to the store. We complain if it's inflationary. Right? But this was different. This was a day and age where every single day the battle for bread existed. And so here the great crowds began to follow Jesus because their desires to be healed, their desires to be fed, their desires to be delivered from oppression. So here we are in John 6. We're all comfortable with where we are. Okay? How tragic to be so near the Lord physically and yet so far away from him spiritually. The crowds come. They come up to the mount and... Most of these people will desert Jesus. 
11 will remain devoted and one will try to deceive him. Which camp are you in? Which camp am I in? We cannot deceive the Lord. We can try. We can seek God for what he brings to us or we can seek God for who he is. Eternity hangs in the balance for each one of your souls in this room. This is not something to play around with. Point two on your outline, desertion. Look with me to John 6, 60 and 65. We'll cover both of those as the key texts. Before we do, we've got to go backwards. John 6, verses 1 through 2. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. In John 6, verse 3, Jesus gently sits down with his disciples. We remember in verse 5, a large crowd is gathering. And the hour is getting late. The Passover feast was at hand, and Jesus was the where that the people needed food. And with man, what did the disciples say? Look how much money we have. Look at the hour. How are we going to do this, Jesus? But with God, all things are possible. And so here we go. Matthew nineteen twenty six. With God, though, all things are possible. Jesus gathers a small amount of food and performs a miracle. He feeds the 5,000 men alone. And then look to verse 12 to 14. My words mean nothing, friends. God's word means everything. We're going to spend a lot of time in God's word together. Okay? Because that's what transforms hearts. That's what renews minds. 12 to 14. While they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign that he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Why did Jesus do miracles? John chapter 20, verse 31 tells us, these signs were done so that people would believe. If you stopped at verse 14, you would think they all believe, right? But they don't. They saw a miracle. They had their bellies full. Verse 15 continues. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him away by force. They wanted to make him king. Jesus withdraws to the mountain by himself to pray. Did you ever notice that in Jesus' life, when things got really hard, what did he do? He goes and prays. He spends time with his father in communion. And what an example that should be for us. He and his disciples head out in the boat, verses 16 through 21, to find themselves not only yet again, what? In a storm. Jesus, unlike Moses, does not part the waters. But what does he do? He walks on the waters. You catch the significance. Water, desert, food, provision. You have two simultaneous, paralleled provision stories happening by the Lord. One in the Exodus, and now 
with the Savior. The next morning, the remaining crowds get on boats to find Jesus again. Look to verse 26 and 27. We'll figure out why. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because of the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Verse 27 continues, Do not work for food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. To which they replied in John chapter 6, verse 30, What sign do you do that we may see and believe? Did you not read verse 14? What happened? They didn't really believe. Just a few verses later, give us another sign, Jesus, so that we really now can believe. Right? He just walked on water. He just fed them. And now they want another sign. How many signs are enough for belief? Never enough. Never enough. Belief is not sight. Do you see that? They were walking with Jesus. They saw the provision, and yet right in front of them was the Lord, and they wanted more. Instead of believing by faith, they asked for another sign. Jesus continues, look to verse 36, and he says, but I said to you, you have seen me, and you do not believe. Jesus' very own began to grumble. They wanted his authority to be proven. They questioned it. The people went on and they wanted physical bread. They wanted help temporarily, to which Jesus replies in verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Now you might be thinking, Chris, we're pretty, (laughs) we haven't even gotten to the sermon text. How long is your sermon? (laughs) Right? You cannot get to verse 60 unless you understand the context. It's critical. So we'll be as long as God's word takes us. That's the answer. Verse 49 continues. And he says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread, continuing in verse 50, which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I have given for life, the word world is my flesh. Then, verse 52, the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Wow. This is radical. This is not what they were expecting. How do we know? Verse 60, look with me. And here we go into the sermon text. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, that's the this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And so the crowds, 
from 20,000 are now whittling down. Because Jesus, look to verse 61, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then, verse 62, if the Son of Man ascending to where heaven was before, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are the Spirit and of life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is an under-exaggeration. What Jesus meant is the majority of you do not believe. And so... The reason that many deserted Jesus was not that his teachings were too hard to understand, but they were too difficult to believe. They did not believe because they had not received life from the Spirit. How do I know that's true? Look to verse 65. God's word teaches us here, and he was saying, For this reason I have come to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. If you believe here this morning, don't be puffed up. It is no way because you're intelligent or I am. It is because of God's unfair choosing of us. Let that settle in. None of us deserve eternal life. The deserters had not believed from the beginning. Jesus makes it clear in verse 64. Salvation begins with God alone. No one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Some of the saddest words ever penned in all of Scripture are in John 60, verse 68. Look with me. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, oh, my apologies. Let me back up. 66, I meant. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you not want to go away also? Do you? Imagine that. 20,000 down to 12. Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go too? And then we have the best line in the entire passage, verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And in verse 69, it continues, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now Jesus here could easily have said, well done. He doesn't. Jesus turns to him there and says, caution, the only reason you believe is because I've chosen you, which we'll learn in 70 and 71. Devotion, the third point on your outline. The 12, like many in the former crowds, had witnessed Jesus feeding the multitudes and walking on water, but most of the 12, most quotes, expressed devotion to Christ because of who he is, the son of God, not what he can do for them. The devoted realize that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Oh, that's my prayer for you this morning. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nothing else more important this morning than that. They devoted realize that Jesus had the words of eternal life, that they may believe and they chose God's word And this confirms that he chose them first. Maybe you're adopted. 
Maybe you have adopted a child. Maybe you're considering adoption. God describes his children as adopted. Why is that significant? Adoption involves four elements. Adoption involves a choice. It involves a commitment. It involves time. And it involves sacrifice. And here we learn from Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So if you're a child of God here this morning, that means he's adopted you. Adopted children are different than biological children. Why? We have four beautiful children, one of which is present this morning. We love them. We love them all. And in a very real sense, we didn't choose them. God chose them for us. And we're thankful for all of them. But God describes you and me that are in Christ as chosen and adopted. Let that settle in for a second. The 11 truly that are in front of Jesus have been grafted into the kingdom due to an adoption before they were even created. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 teaches us. And that is beautiful. It's a beautiful image which God describes for his children for adoption involves what? Sacrifice. Time, planning, money, sacrifice, commitment, intentional choosing. Did you ever notice that all three elements of the Trinity are involved in your adoption? God the Father in Ephesians 1, 4 teaches us that he elects, he chooses before the foundation of the world. John 14, 6, God the Son is the means of saving. Here in front of them is God the Son incarnate saying, You have to eat and drink. He's the means. He's literally standing in front of these 20,000. And almost all of them desert him. Through faith in him alone, Jesus states, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And the Spirit is the agent who applies and guarantees eternal life in the believer. It is the spirit, John 6, 63, who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words which Jesus spoke are full of spirit and life. Or how about Ephesians 1, 13 to 14? In him also you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. And you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. John Calvin once wrote, this isn't a quote that's up there. So, I have two that will show up on the screen because their words are so much better than mine. The Holy Spirit is a vital bonding agent, the glue of the gospel, securing sinners immediately and permanently to Christ Jesus. True disciples adopted children of God realize that no one is like Jesus for they understand two important facts. If you take notes, please take these down. God's word produces physical life and the word of God produces spiritual life. 
God's word produces physical life, and the word of God produces spiritual life. Physical life. God's word brought life out of nothing. John, or sorry, Genesis 1.1 states, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. How does God create? By speaking. And the eternal word, Jesus Christ, was in the beginning with God. John 1, 3 confirms all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made. So here we have God, the Son incarnate, John 1.14, taking on flesh, miracle, 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 standing in front of them, and they're going to reject him, except the 11. Spiritual life, under this point. It is by the word of God that we are rescued from spiritual death to life. It is not the preacher's word. I don't care how eloquent your preacher is. I don't care how entertaining they are. The only thing that produces eternal life is the word of God that transforms hearts. John 1, 9 through 13, the true light, Jesus, which gives life to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own as people did not receive him, but all who did receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we know before, not just children, adopted children. Jesus was born to die so that you and I can have eternal life if we have faith in him alone. For no one is like Jesus. Thousands deserted Jesus. Jesus then questions, as we know in chapter 6, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? Do you? There are going to be times in your life, in my life, where we are going to be pressed in on. Where else shall we go? Peter's reply is my prayer for everyone in this room. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Perhaps, let me give you three subpoints. There are other treasures people devote themselves to. What are they? Wealth, health, youth. Let me give you those three. Those are the main categories. No matter how you want to camp those in, somehow almost all of them show up in the world around us. Acquiring wealth, things of the world, beauty, trying to hold on to youth, trying to prolong our lives, health. God's word instructs us, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves wealth his income, for this is vanity. Ecclesiastes. Do not lay up treasures for yourself, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy them. Matthew 6, 19. All people are like grass and all the glory is like the flowers of the field, the grass that withers and the flowers fail and fall. First Peter 1, 24. Maybe you're thinking this morning, there must be another way. Jesus teaches us they're just too hard. It's too exclusive. People are not that bad in the end. Have you heard the expression, all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> we have a dog. 
I don't know if dogs go to heaven, so don't, don't, I have no idea. I don't think so, but that's just my opinion. I know there's animals in heaven. I'd like to think our Beatrix will be part of it. But you know probably better than that. There's real evil in this world, and it requires real justice. Just consider the horrific events you see in the news every day, if you watch it. God has woven into us a moral conscience, and he knows that injustices must be held to account, and in the end, so do you. We know that. Sin is everywhere. Maybe you're thinking, I'm just not as bad as that other person that I watched in the news. Maybe you watch the Russia account in Ukraine and think, well, that's a lot worse than I am. How many sins keep us from God? One. We are born into sin. We are born sinners. We inherit it by our very nature. Just ask any parent, did you ever have to teach your kids to sin? Right? You didn't have to. Nor did we. What about other religions? Do they work? Hopeless, helpless, void. Where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. God's word affirms in Acts 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? He is. Jesus is not like anyone else who's ever lived or will ever live, for he is the son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. I'm gonna get you to put up the John Piper quote, and I'm gonna read this to you. John Piper adds, no one ever spoke like you. And if he was here, he'd be using his arms, right? <laughs> no one ever spoke like you. No one ever acted like you. No one ever was strong and meek and so tough and tender, so authoritative and gentle and so profound and simple, so powerful and so willing to be killed, so just and so willing to be treated unjustly, so worthy of honor and so willing to be dishonored and so deserving of immediate obedience and so patient with people like us and so able to answer every question and so willing to remain silent under abuse. So capable of coming down from the cross in flaming judgment. And so committed not to use that power. That's who Jesus is. Verse 69, Peter continues. We have believed and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. D.A. Carson adds, Peter speaks his mind as usual, but states that we believe and we know. What did the Peter and the disciples claim to know? That Jesus is the Holy One of God. Do you believe he's the Holy One of God? Yes. Good. Greater than any prophet, greater than Moses, greater than all. He's the only Messiah, the only Holy One of God. Peter acknowledges this truth. Praise God. But there's an undertone that they have even here. Like, we know this. We're smart. We figured it out. Deception. Do not be deceived is your third, fourth point on the outline. Verse 70, what does God's word say? Jesus answered them, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? This is not the storybook ending you want, is it? So the 12 are now down to 11. And Jesus corrects Peter yet again, saying, you got it right, 
The only reason you got it right is because I chose you. That's true for us too. The only reason we respond, we know and we believe, is that the Father has chosen us, combined with someone sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and then our response. Our faith is never without the Father's effective work in our lives, firstly. The Father calls the Son in humility, went to the cross, was exalted, and the Spirit seals salvation in the believers. All three members of the Trinity are involved in your salvation. Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, all praise, all glory, all honor are due to God, Father, Son, and Spirit alone. Jesus continues. One of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. What an ending. You've heard of cliffhanger endings? Her daughter is an authoress, if that's the right word. And often she'll write a chapter, and at the end of it, she'll leave a cliffhanger. This cliffhanger is one that we need to pay attention to. Judas deceives all of the others around him. Do you notice this? It's not like the others are going, oh, well, we know who that one is. It's not clear, is it? Jesus knows clearly which of the 12 is going to be the one that turns him in, so to speak, and deceives him. Did ever, you ever think about that for a second? The other is probably like, is it me? Is it me? And yet, Jesus knows exactly who the me is. Here's the fascinating point to this. Do you remember what happens in John 13 to 17? So they're going to go, remember we're talking about Passover. So between John 6, verse 60 to 71 to John 13, we now enter into another festival, which we'll pick up a little bit later. Next week, we're going to talk about the Feast of Booths and Tabernacles. But here, he is going to have the next and the last Passover before he dies. John 13 to 17. And Jesus gets together with his disciples and washes their feet. Guess who was part of that foot washing ceremony? Judas. Jesus gives him chance after chance after chance. Some of you in this room have been given a lot of chances. I know I have been. But you may not be given more. These are the words of eternal life. To whom else shall you go? One of you is a devil, he says to them. Isn't it sad, startling fact that Jesus selected him for service, but Judas was a false disciple? Judas' desertion was pending in the form of an ultimate deception, betraying the Son of Man, the Son of God, for temporary gain. Remember what he gets? 30 pieces of silver. The deception was... Did not fool the Lord. First Timothy 2.19, God knows who are his. Consider that Jesus, the night before his betrayal in the book of John, humbles himself, but doesn't just wash their feet. This is the Lord of the Lords, the King of the Jews. The reason that's so significant, friends, Jewish people never washed the feet of anyone. And the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the Jews, which by the way would be on the cross, bends down and washes the deserters 
and the deceivers. He spoke tenderly to all, called them not just slaves, but in John 14, 14, he says, I now call you friends, for you know the will and the plans of the Father. Ligon Duncan, second quote, if you'd be kind enough to please put that up there. Do you realize the kind of love that the Lord Jesus is showing them? He's determined to sit down with memorial worship with his betrayer, with a group of disciples who are within two hours of the supper going to desert him. He is determined to sit down with that motley crew and worship God and pledge to them his undying love. That's the Jesus we serve. That's the example. Judas was done with Jesus and ready to enact his betrayal on Jesus, but Jesus was not done with him. And he shows one more beautiful time his undying love for even him. Aren't we thankful that Jesus is not done with us as well? Praise God. We may be deceiving ourselves if we realize or don't realize that we're in desperate need for Jesus to save us. There's nothing that you bring to the table. There's nothing you can do. The Lord loves you, and he sent his son to die for you and me undeservingly. Many came to see and hear Jesus and did not devote their lives to him tragically. A great multitude came from all around to see the signs, to be entertained, to have their needs met. Healing, what's the next miracle Jesus is going to do? Can you imagine? I was there for that one. The reason the miracles and the signs exist was for belief. Belief is seeing. A great multitude disbelieved. Yet when they came time to follow him and they returned and they deserted him. Many wanted another Moses, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus had more glory than the builder of the house and has more honor than the house itself. Hebrews 3.3 teaches us that. Jesus is the builder of the house Moses is the house itself. In scripture, the house is a metaphor of God's people. The church, 1 Timothy 3.15. In the end, Moses, while a great servant, is only a servant. Jesus, however, is the builder of the house. And as such, deserves great honor. So finally, what about you? D-Day. Those that know military, D-Day was something that happened right before the end of World War II. And it was a a day that went into infamy that would change the course forever. We're Canadians. We were involved. (laughs) Americans. Then we probably had an army. Now not so much. But that day went down because there was a decision that was made. And the course of events of history would forever be changed. The weather was poor. The plan was enacted. And a ruthless ruler was overthrown. Who's on the throne of your heart right now? You cannot live for God in this world. Either live for God or you live for righteousness. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to to God. Jesus in John 14, 14 and 15 says, I no longer call you a slave, but I call you a friend. 
But that didn't mean that the friends weren't under slavery. For they would become slaves to righteousness. If we truly follow Christ, it comes with a cost. And that cost will forever be worthwhile. So what is your decision today? That's the D for D-Day. Some deserted, one deceived, and 11 remained devoted. I changed the order. That's intentional. Maybe you turned from Jesus and deserted him in the past. That does not mean that he is done with you today. Consider Jesus turns to Peter, my favorite person in scripture, perhaps, is Peter. Because I can really, really attest, I can really believe that that is me in so many ways. Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. He denies him three times. I mean, right? Everybody else can do this. No, 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 no. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to and he fails, and he fails, and he fails. Did you ever notice at the end of John, after 20, verse 31, Jesus pauses and comes back on the scene and recommissions Peter? It's the most beautiful part of John to me because he takes somebody that has failed and falled again and again and again, and he turns to him, and he says to him three times, How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. And he turns to him three times and he says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he says to him, then follow me. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. How tender is that? Perhaps you're like Peter. Perhaps you've been like me. This does not mean the Lord is done with you. Do you love me? If so, follow me. If so, follow me. Where else shall we go? Maybe you've been deceiving yourself and others about following Jesus. You play the game. You come to church. You dress nice. It doesn't work. He will press in on you just like he did here to the people. Do you really believe? Do you have any idea the intensity and the focus and the love Jesus Christ has for you this morning? Do you have any idea? Is he worthy? He is. He dined with the people on the mount. He dined with the disciples the night he was betrayed, including betrayer. What do you decide? Who do you believe Jesus is? Today is your D-Day. Maybe you've already made your decision. Then this is your devoted day. I pray it is. If you are stirred by the Spirit, Friends, this is not a day to be trifled with. There were 20,000, went down to 11. Jesus fed them all. Jesus spoke to them all. Many deserted. I don't want that for your future. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be saved, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Where else shall we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life, belief that leads to life. That's the prayer. If you already believe, let me speak to you lastly. If you're already a devoted follower, praise God. This has nothing to do with who you are. It's because you were adopted by Christ. Chosen by the Father. The means through the Son. Sealed by the Spirit. 
Therefore, Jesus informs his disciple at the end of 6, their faith is from his choosing, meaning that they should not boast. They were once dead, and they have been made alive through faith in Christ, initiated by God. Thus, we pause, and we praise, and we say, thank you, God. But this world around you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, need Christ. Does that burden us? How has the love for Christ impacted your love for others? Because God's word says we are to love him and then love others. We do not love others unless we speak the truth in love. It's not just good to play the game and get along well with everybody. The world will hate us because it hated him first. But we speak the truth. Who are we praying for? Are we saddened? when others are turning away from Jesus that we love? Consider how much it saddened Christ to see the 20,000, most of them walk away. Do you want to leave me also? Many deserted, one deceived. Some remain devoted. May our lives, friends, this morning be a billboard which shines the words spoken by Peter to Jesus. Where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you choose us, sinners, undeserving of your grace and your kindness and your love and your care. And we just want to praise you this morning for who you are, a sovereign God. I pray for any in this room or watching that are not devoted followers, that you actually take my feeble words and your holy word and implant it on their hearts. And today is a day of decision. Today is a day where they move from living as slaves from this world to slaves of righteousness, to choosing Christ because he has chosen them first. So God, I pray that lives, souls will be saved. And those that are followers, God, may we be devoted afresh today, on fire because of what you've done for us. You are worthy. You are worthy. And we thank you.